When Anna spoke the other night about Papanja and the proliferation of thoughts and mind so well, she really um, described what is for us in meditation a shift of identity from the ideas and thoughts about things to a deeper level of knowing. This is an email that was written. A couple from snowy Minnesota decided to take a winter vacation back in the simple Florida resort where they had stayed for a honeymoon 25 years before. Because of his wife's delayed work schedule, the husband went first, and then when he got there, he received a message that she would meet him soon. So he sent her this email in reply. But because he typed one letter wrong in the email address, it went by mistake to an old woman in Oklahoma whose minister husband had just died the day before. Here is what she read. Dearest, well, the journey is over, and I have finally arrived. I was surprised to find they have email here now. They tell me you will be coming soon. It will be good to be together again. Love as always. P.S. Be prepared. It's quite hot down here. So part of what happens as we sit is we see all the stories and the fantasies and the um, imaginings and the whole sense of self that's created out of these, the small sense of self that's sometimes called the body of fear, the place that we live in our fears. And as we practice, we begin to also recognize and inhabit the reality of the present that knows those proliferations that Anna described and the thought structures and so forth, but is not caught in them, is not caught by the limited sense of self. And when you read the Buddhist texts, they begin um, very often with a phrase that says, O nobly born, or you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, or you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. Remember your true nature. When my teacher Ajahn Chah was studying, practicing for years in the jungles of Thailand, he went to visit his his teacher, Ajahn Man. And Ajahn Man received him, and Ajahn Chah talked about all the different kinds of meditation experiences and lights and visions and insights and various things that had come. And Ajahn Man looked at him and said, the main point is none of these. He said, the main point is the knowing of these. If you are caught in these experiences, whatever they are, they are endless because experiences are endless. And what you need to become is... in." is the one who knows, which was a favorite phrase of Ajahn Chah, to become the one who knows, to become the knowing. Um, and there's a kind of play on words in the Thai language because it's, it's sort, shortened in these two words, puru, which means the, the person or the one who knows, but it also means the knowing of the Buddha. So you become, you become the knowing or you see from the eyes of the Buddha the play of experience. And you begin to rest in and trust this knowing that has space for all experience, that is present for all things, that doesn't have to be caught by experience, that has as its nature wisdom. Now often in Buddhist practice, and it's certainly been true in you know, Vipassana, people come and there's these teachings about coming to an end of suffering and then there's the teachings about concentration and mindfulness. And we start to think 
that if we do it right, if we purify ourselves, which is one of the language that's used, and concentrate and release our hindrances and defilements and so forth, that we'll come to a place of purity and freedom. But as we've said, the fundamental truth of meditation is not a self-improvement game. It's not jogging and going to the gym and getting therapy and, you know, more therapy and Botox and various things like that. They're all good. You know, I go to therapy and it's been very helpful. But it's not really about that, even though these things can serve us. It is to awaken to a truth, a knowing, a wisdom that we could call our Buddha nature or our true nature that is independent of the changing conditions of the world. This a poem from Juan Ramón Jiménez, whose title is Yo no soy yo. I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I am indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. I am not I, I am not this one caught in all these things of the world. I am the one who's silent and forgiving and outdoors always, beyond birth and death. Now, to understand in ourselves, to come into our own nobility, our Buddha nature, our wisdom, it's also helpful to know the one who forgets, not just the one who knows. Alan Watts wrote a book entitled On the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are. And I talked some about the one who forgets the other morning when I mentioned sleep and how mysterious it is that we go unconscious for these long periods and long for it and love it. Oh, could I please have some more unconsciousness, a nice, you know, undisturbed time. Um, And, of course, parents with young children are especially fond of this kind of thing. But there's a second sleep. In the Hindu, Indian culture, they say that the baby in the womb sings a song that goes, do not let me forget who I am or who I really am. And then the refrain changes when the baby is born and it goes, oh dear, I'm forgetting already. (laughs) And we do, we forget our true nature, we forget who we are. And there are certain benefits to forgetting. We can let go, we can put things aside. There's a a poem from Emily Dickinson where she writes, There is a pain so utter, it covers substance up, then covers the abyss with trance, so memory can step across as if in a swoon. And sometimes our our sorrows and our trauma and so forth are really deep, and to forget for a time is actually healing. That's all right. The problem is when it becomes automatic or habitual, it can so easily fall into denial. Individual denial, collective denial. This from James Baldwin, who writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. So we put it on somebody else because we can't bear it ourselves. That's a kind of denial. Or Larry Rosenberg, who's a wonderful friend and teacher here, and who, you know, he's kind of the original health food nut. He's eaten really well since before it was fashionable, and he's, you know, taken every vitamin and done all these things and so forth. And he he said he was... um, writing the MTA in Boston, I don't know, half a dozen or more years ago. And at that time, he was a little older than me. Maybe he was in his mid-60s, but very, you know, vital. And and it pulled into a stop and pulled out, and he was um, standing there. And this young woman got up from a seat, 
And he thought, oh, she's going to get off on the next stop. And then instead she just hung there on the strap. And he said, and all of a sudden I had this stupendous realization that she had gotten up to give me her seat. And then he said, wait a second, I'm the guy who gives the seat up, you know, to pregnant women and to people who are disabled and so forth. You know, but in her eyes, all those students in Boston, you know how it is, I was this old guy. And all of a sudden I had to see myself in this way that I had never seen myself before. So many forms of putting ourselves to sleep about the way our life actually is. You have as much chance winning the lottery as them sending it to you by accident, right? (laughs) Dwight David Eisenhower, this famous passage. Remember, he was the supreme Allied commander who won the Second World War. In In his last days as president, he says, every gun that is made, every warship launched... Every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, from those who are cold and not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. And it's a collective madness that we, the U.S., which we're all a part of for better and for worse, has, um, is the largest weapon supplier on the face of the earth, and it has been for years. Billions and billions of dollars of weapons that we manufacture and export to pay for our imports of, you know, stereos or whatever we want to import. Sell killing machines around the world, and then we worry that we're not safe. So there's denial happening. And it's kind of astonishing how much we can be in denial about the world. It's almost as if there's this kind of hide-and-seek happening. And then you come to sit. Go ahead, writes one Indian saint. Light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods. But watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. Didn't get as much of a laugh from that one, huh? It's a little, <laughs> little close to home. So here you sit. I mean, here we're all sitting together, like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, paying attention to the breath and body and taking our seat on the earth here. And then who appears as you sit? Mara. That's right. On the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara, the Indian name, the archetype for the the forces of greed and hatred and delusion and ignorance and and um, evil, depending what language you want to use. You know Mara, right? So you sit here, and Mara is really cool because it doesn't matter. You could sit here, you could go back home and sit in your bedroom. Wherever you sit and close your eyes, Mara says, great. You know, Mara shows up. It's quite phenomenal. And so Mara comes in all these different forms. You're sitting here. And Mara comes as judgments, I'm doing okay, I'm not doing okay, as doubt, as anger, as loss, or loneliness, as all the temptations and the desires, as the subtleties in meditation. Oh, it's getting really good now. I must be really a good meditator, you know. Um, As unworthiness. You know that one. The, The sense of our own not being enough. Um, our fears. And we practice sitting and breathing and naming what comes. Oh, fear, fear, fear. And maybe it stays fear. And it says, oh my God, I'm going to die. Okay, dying, dying. You notice? And you, 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 you pay attention. And the move to make when Mara comes is to say to Mara, okay, show me your stuff. You know, if it's fear or doubt or confusion or whatever, Mara comes. If you resist, that gives Mara a lot of power, actually, because Mara says, oh, great, they're resisting me, and you get in this long struggle, which can go on for days, lifetimes, apparently. But instead, if you sit like the Buddha, 
And Mara comes in whatever form, you know, your fears, your confusion, your unworthiness. And you say, oh, Mara, is that you again? Mara says, yes. Say, I see you, Mara. Okay, show me your stuff. Fear, let me see how big fear is. Tears, grief. All right, how big is this grief? Is it the ocean of tears the Buddha spoke of? Anger, confusion. Let's see it. And the minute that you make space, what happens? It gets bigger. It shows a wild dance. And after a while, Mara gets bored. Mara's actually only interested in the, in the conflict. And when the one who knows enough in us says, oh, hello, Mara, let's see your dance again. It's as if all of a sudden the power of Mara disappears and we rest in the knowing. And it's so liberating. So when we sit in interviews, people come in with all their different stories, their feelings and thoughts and their joys and sorrows and so forth. And our job, our place, is really to sit and see your nobility, to see you, O nobly born, you are the daughters and sons of the awakened ones. And so all this stuff comes, and basically these feelings and thoughts and so forth do not define who you are. That's not your true identity. Yes, there'll be tears and there'll be grief and there'll be need for healing and all those things that need to be respected. But that's just not who you are. So, okay, you come in with whatever it is. Well, that's interesting. And here we are, you know, thank you. Good show. And as you recognize this in your practice, there become deepening moments of stillness, of ease, of joy of peace, of a vast spaciousness that is your true nature. Mara comes and you say, okay, show me. And then there's this big space. Mara does the dance and goes, and now here's the breath, and here's well-being, and here's presence. And more and more you begin to trust the moments of knowing, the space of knowing, the gaps between all the dramas. And this space of knowing, the one who knows, is called the abode of the Buddhas, the vihara, which means the Brahma vihara is the abode of the the gods. Vihara means the, the dwelling place. And in interviews, I mean, sometimes they just want to switch places with you because you come and you have all this stuff and then some other part of you knows exactly what to do with it. Oh, this is just experience. So the one who knows in us, which is awakened or touched any time we pay attention, any time we're here, the one who knows in us knows that life is short and is comfortable with uncertainty. As I think it was Gina who read, to everything there is a season, My teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to call it my na in Thai, which means uncertain, isn't it? And people would ask him about all kinds of things, from what should I do, or what do you think is going to happen, or what about enlightenment, or how should the monastery... And he would sit there and say, my na, my na, you know, and laugh about it. Because he understood the wisdom of insecurity, the don't know mind. He didn't have a lot of opinions. I don't know, you could try this. Or try that. That's just the dance. But that's not where I sit. That's not the place of wisdom. Don't know mind instead of all the, all the opinions. So the one who knows rests in mystery. Knowing that life is short, there's a preciousness to each day. And the mystery of life is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. One old Sufi went to the palace of the Sultan in Iraq in those days when there were sultans and palaces and wise Sufis wandering around. Still maybe a few hidden there. Banged on the door and said, hey, can I stay for a night in your motel? Well, the guard went in 
and passed this along to the sultan who got really upset. Said, this isn't a motel, this is the great, you know, Sultan Ibn Muhammad Abdul, you know, all these wonderful honorifics, and this, and drag that man in here, and he was taken in, you know, how dare you insult, insult me like that. And the Sufi looked at him, he said, let me ask you a couple questions. He said, whose place was this before you were the great Sultan? He said, why, my father, you know, Sultan, and he gave his whole long honorific. What happened to him? Well, of course, he died, and he, you know, turned it over to me, his son. And who was here before him? Oh, that was my grandfather, the great caliph so-and-so, with all these wonderful titles. Oh, yes, what happened to him? Well, he was here a long time, and then, of course, he passed away and gave it to my father and so forth, went back a couple more generations. And the Sufi looked him in the eye and said, and this place where people lodge for a brief while and then move on, did you say it's not a motel? From the Anguttara Nikaya, it seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. So there's a profound vulnerability to this truth. And it is the vulnerability that is our life. And the one who knows says, yes, this is the way it is. Life is fleeting and precious for that, more beautiful, and doesn't kind of hold on all the time because holding on doesn't help. Mary Oliver poem. For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. You know that, don't you? For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said and vanished into the world. An amazing poem to both love life, because it's so precious and beautiful, and then don't love your life too much. And both are true, and the one who knows in us knows this. And so we take care with what we do, not by clinging, but by appreciating each moment, each day. The one who knows in us rests in the reality of the present. The point is not the future of humanity. It is the presence of eternity. And one of the beautiful things that happens on retreat is that you start to have this sense that you had when you were a small child. Remember when you were a little kid, maybe three or four years old, how infinitely long was the year between birthdays, like between your third and fourth birthday. It was like way out there, centuries away. And you know why that is? Because you were there. Because you were so present, time opens up for you. Aldous Huxley writes, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time in the idea of endless progress is the devil's work demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. So the one who knows in us rests in the reality of the present and you walk out there and sometimes you feel like you're two years old again just taking this little step. You haven't, you know, this, you haven't felt a step on the grass like that for you know, however many decades, and you see the phases of the moon and you hear the call of the birds here and the peepers, and it's not about grasping, but seeing the unfolding of eternity in each moment. Not the past, not the future, not even clinging to the present, but being in the universe. And from the place of the one who knows, this resting in the present, there is um, an ease in the world. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green rhinoceros as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long pigtails, her battered cardboard books swung on their soggy pages. 
If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction or just because, and if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game. In the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face, rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. So the one who knows in us lives in the mystery of the present, not holding on so much, seeing the fleetingness that no day will ever be like this one again. Rest in the reality of the present, the the time that is timeless. Now, of course, sometimes the sits feel like they'll last forever, right? (laughs) Eternity comes before the bell rings. But I don't mean that kind. The one who knows is not afraid of pleasure and pain. And it's one of the great things we learn here that Gina read about last night in that beautiful passage. Pleasure and pain are woven into the duality of human birth. I don't know how you got in here. How did you get into one of these you know, strange human bodies? But somehow you're in there, right? And with it comes birth, and death, they're both part of the ticket, you know, like they tear the ticket. And when you go in the theater, that's part of the drama. And praise and blame, and joy and sorrow, and gain and loss, and hot and cold. It's just how it is. It's how incarnation on this planet takes place. And the one who knows says, yes, here I am open to this mystery present in life. And when pleasure arises... The one who knows is not afraid of pleasure. And some of us are so loyal to our suffering. We are, you know, and it's a a radical and beautiful thing to allow some happiness to come in the heart. Joy is one of the factors of enlightenment, said the Buddha. It's one of the jhana factors. It's one of the qualities that actually allow us to live with wisdom. So in a novel by Mary Gatskill, a character, Veronica is a social work intern in Watts, in a neighborhood um, community center. And, and around the center is this stray cat known as Baldy. And she gets the idea to feed it. She worried, though, what the people she worked with around the community center would think. At first, I thought they were angry at me, the men. They glared and they said, he don't know what to do with that. He ain't never had anything that good in his life. And I said, well, I'll just try. And I opened the can. They stopped playing pool, and they all watched when I put it down. And let me tell you, the way that cat buried his head in the can, he'd thrust his head down, fingers splayed out, his refined voice rolling and softly gobbling. He looked up at us, and if cats could cry, tears would have been streaming down his face. And nobody said a word. Then one of the men crouched down and held the can so the cat could get to it better. And every day after that, I brought in a can of food, and every day the men would gather to watch Baldy eat. It was probably one of the few times they got to see a righteous need completely satisfied. And if we can't take satisfaction in this world, there's something that's not right about our spiritual life. It's not to take us away from the world, but to bring us into the present fully and open-heartedly. So the one who knows is not afraid of pleasure and also not afraid of pain. As Gina talked about, pain too arises. And it's part of the dance. This from Annie Morrow Lindbergh. Go with the pain. Let it take you. Open your palms and your body to the pain. It comes in waves like a tide, and you must be open as a vessel lying on the beach, letting it fill you up, and then retreating, leaving you empty and clear. With a deep breath, it has to be as deep as the pain, One reaches a kind of inner freedom from pain, as though the pain were not yours, 
but your bodies. The spirit lays the body on the altar. And so the one who knows sees the dance of joy and sorrow, gain and loss in life. As it says in Zen, if you understand, things are just as they are. And if you don't understand, things are just as they are. And the one who knows sees the dance. The one who knows in us, and all you can feel how this one who knows is awakened in you over these days of sitting and walking and paying attention, to be in the present, to be with the play of joy and sorrow and gain and loss. The one who knows looks at the world with eyes of compassion. The one who knows in us doesn't blame the government, the fundamentalists, the capitalists, the Democrats, the Republicans, doesn't blame our lovers or our spouse or our partner or our childhood. Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so you fall and your groceries are strewn on the ground all over. And as you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you're ready to shout out, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. And there he is, too, sprawled in the spilled groceries and tomato juice. And your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our human situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is ignorance, then we can open the door of wisdom and compassion. So the one who knows sees with the eyes of compassion how much blindness, how much fear, how much ignorance there is. And instead of blaming everybody, really sees the suffering of the world with an open heart. Now you sit and walk here and we get really sensitive. So the littlest thing, you know, the way somebody, and it becomes the place to experiment with practicing. First there's the contraction because we're so vulnerable and open. And then there's the one who knows who said, oh yes, this too. This person is belching after lunch, you know, probably because it's hard for their digestion. You know, and you could sit there and kind of resent their belching. They probably don't even want to be belching. They're probably humiliated by their belching. Think, oh my God, everyone thinks I'm a horrible person because I'm sitting here belching. It's true, you know. (laughs) My neighbor's musical instrument of choice, this is like John Cage, my neighbor's musical instrument of choice is the door. (laughs) At first, I thought it was a major nuisance. And then I saw it was really part of a kind of percussion sonata. And the aggravation dissolved. And now I observe how skillful this soloist is in his entrance and exit. (laughs) And basically, you can see either we are at war with the world, or as Ajahn Chah said, we can step out of the battle and rest in the one who knows and say, oh, This is the way the world is. It's not going to be perfect the way we want it to be. It's going to be this play of pleasure and pain and ease and difficulty and sometimes it'll be this way and sometimes that. And if you want to control other people, well, you know, you tried controlling your own mind this week and then (laughs) failure, right? How are you going to control somebody else? But as the one who knows... As the one who knows, we look to the world... And see here are all these people struggling, suffering, wrestling, sometimes creating tremendous suffering from their ignorance, harm, sometimes not. And we begin to look instead not with blame, but with the eyes of mercy. This person too. Now if I change tenor in this talk a little bit, which I will, um, some weeks ago, my very good friend, and teacher as well, Mahagosananda, Cambodian monk, died. Um, He was the head of Cambodian Buddhism 
we brought him here to the U.S. He spent one three-month retreat living up in M101 and working with students. And I'd lived with him in the forest monastery. And, and there's a beautiful obituary for him that I will read part of that comes from The Economist magazine of all places. Thank you. Um, and the thing about Gosananda was he was extremely simple. He really lived from the one who knows. When we were in the forest monastery, Christopher Titmus, myself, several other people who are now teachers back in, you know, 35 or more years ago, we were all sitting and walking and practicing and trying to, you know, have all that stuff happen that we thought was going to change us somehow or other and make us happy. Um, and he didn't sit and walk with the same kind of ardor. He did it a little bit, but he translated for people, and he kind of brought them tea, and he took care of them. And I thought, well, he's a nice guy. He's a sweet man, and he's a kind of scholar, which he was. He knew 15 languages and had a doctorate. And I, I see, he's sort of a scholar. He doesn't know how to meditate. He doesn't know how to do the real thing. <laughs> little did I know that actually he was the saint, and he was looking at us with compassion, saying, oh, these poor Westerners were struggling so hard. I hope they get it. Asia's great spiritual leaders tend to build shrines around themselves. There they sit, disciples at their feet, handing down the instructions for achieving the perfect life. When Mahagosananda became associated with Buddhist temples in Rhode Island, California, Massachusetts, his admirers expected to find him there. He seldom was. He would be far away walking. Where he walked was often remote, but it was neither safe nor quiet. He would tread a little bird-like man with hands folded and head bowed along the narrow paths that threaded through the jungle forest of central Cambodia. Care was necessary, for the ground had been sown with landmines. Humidity would mist his glasses, his orange monk's robes hitched up to show stout boots and socks would tangle in the bushes. Behind him chanting would be two or three hundred monks and laymen walking through the worst war zones of Cambodia chanting for peace. He did it for 15 years in a row, taking refugees back to their villages with metta every step because he didn't think there was any way they could do it without his care. And people would throw grenades. Somebody, people would shoot at him. Other soldiers would lay their guns at his feet. One man came and the monk behind him was ringing this bell, beautiful bell. And he said, oh, I love that bell. Could I have it, please? You know, I'm living out in the forest. And the monk behind him said, I'll give you this bell for your gun. And the soldier said, I can't give you my, if I give you my gun, you know, my officer would probably shoot me. And then the monk said, all right, I'll give you this bell for all the rounds in your gun, if you take out all the bullets. And so that was the trade. Here's the bell for the bullets. So Gosananda had missed the horrors of the Khmer Rouge years, his family had been wiped out. Monks like him were branded social parasites. Out of the 60,000 monks and nuns, 57,000 were murdered. He wasn't because he was in the forest monasteries with me in Thailand. And then as soon as he could, he went back. Even though he was a polymath and a brilliant intellectual, he couldn't stay out of the world. Rather than devote himself to scholarship, he built hut temples in the refugee camps and handed out tens of thousands of dog-eared photocopies of the Buddha's words on loving-kindness. With a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating love over the entire world, upward to the skies, downward to the depths. On his walks, his message remained the same. No complication. The work he knew was slow, step by step, as he liked to say. It would continue as long as Cambodians felt divided from each other and brutalized by their past. After 1980, he was made much of. He represented the Cambodian government in exile at the United Nations. It's partly when he was living here. He was influential in the peace talks. In 88, he was made Supreme Patriarch of Cambodia. Several times he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He founded more than 50 temples across the world, some he spoke at, but his first priority lay elsewhere. It was to appear bird-like out of the Cambodian forest 
to surprise a man digging or a woman washing, to chant to them, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed, to remind them that the power of love was stronger than the forces of history, and then to move on. And the one who knows in us knows this truth as deeply as Gosananda knew, that the power of love is greater than the forces of history. The one who knows in us sees this practice not as a withdrawal from the world, but really as a preparation for our life. Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic, writes, the outer work will never be puny if the inner work is great. In Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit, and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So for us, the one who knows in our practice sees this amazing balance. Perhaps this is the first time on earth when the most pressing and dangerous human problems are caused by ourselves. Deforestation, pollution disasters, nuclear proliferation, you know, grain elevators full of food here and millions of children, people who are hungry in another place. As Chief Seattle says, what is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men would die from great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. And in that kind of old language, he says something that's so, so true. So what is the one who knows to do? The first thing the one who knows to do is nothing at all, is to sit here. We can make, says William Butler Yeats, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And so one way, the one who knows, is to stop. And when I grew up in Massachusetts, we had the blue laws. On Sunday, you couldn't do business. I mean, now it's 24-7. But the Sabbath, the full moon and new moon and quarter moon in the Buddhist countries, the Friday Muslim call to prayer, the Saturday Shabbos, the Sunday Sabbath, just to have a time to stop and listen to what needs to be responded to. And then if a child falls in the street, what do you do? You pick them up, you pick her up, you pick him up. It's not very complicated. There are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And this path that we undertake is sometimes called the path of the bodhisattva, of the one who cares for others as they care for themselves, not because you're supposed to or because it's a particularly um, special thing to do, but because more and more it becomes impossible to tell the difference. I mean, it's just our family. And so it says in one great Buddhist text, you have now seen the arising and passing of all experience and come to rest in your true nature. And now there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not realize the essence of their mind. And you will spend your life working for the sake of these others, but your meditations have cleansed away any idea that these others really exist apart from yourself. The Dalai Lama, when he gets up in the morning, takes the vows, 
May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those on the road. May I be a boat, a raft, a bridge, a lamp for those who long for light. May for those who need a resting place, a bed, may I be the wishing jewel, the medicine for all ills, the tree of miracles for every being. For as long as beings exist, I offer myself until we all pass beyond the bounds of sorrow. It's a pretty amazing vow to take from Shantideva. May I offer my life. And the thing is that it's not because we do it to serve someone else. Kalarimache puts it this way. He says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand, you will see you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. You are nothing and everything, or Nisargadot who says, wisdom says I am nothing, love says I am everything. Between these two my life flows. And for the one who knows as we get quiet, and as we get still in ourself, breathing in is one part, and breathing out is the other. We breathe in and quiet the mind, and we breathe out and serve the world. And they're really not different. Gandhi took a day a week in silence. And it didn't matter that he was in the middle of dismantling the, Brit- the entire British Empire. You know? And there were, you know, you're getting a call from the king, and all these people are rioting, and you know, we have to do things. And he'd say, well, this is my quiet day. Sorry about that. And he would just stop, period, and spend a day to quiet his mind, make some prayers, listen to his heart, connect with the one who knows, so that his actions could come from the place not of reaction or anger or hatred, but from that knowing that would serve best every being. Ariratana, who is the um, great Dharma figure of Sri Lanka right now, he is a kind of Gandhi figure for Sri Lanka, who started the Sarvodhya movement of village development as a spiritual practice, building roads and schools in a third of the villages of the whole country. He said, I don't care about building roads and schools. I really want to build community. I want to build people's love for one another. And we use roads and schools and wells as a vehicle to do that. This terrible civil war that they're in, a peace treaty was brokered a few years ago that's now kind of falling apart, brokered by the Norwegians. And Ari called all the members of Sarbodia to a meeting at Anuradhapura, and 650,000 people gathered there um, for his words on the new peace treaty. And at that occasion, he presented the Sarvodhya 500-year peace plan. He said, Buddhism, the Buddha teaches causes and conditions, not just the results, but we need to know the causes. So it's been 400 years of colonialism, 500 years of conflict between Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims, 200 years of economic disparity between the rich and the poor parts of the island, it's going to take us 500 years to undo this. Five years of ceasefire, 10 years of rebuilding roads and schools, 25 years of starting to learn each other's languages and religions, 50-year plan to work on the writing of the economic disparity, and after 100 years we'll have a council to see how we're proceeding, how we're doing. And then we'll start again for the second 200 years and do this for five centuries. And when I heard this, he's a a friend and a wonderful man, I was so touched because it was the vision of an elder. It was not somebody who was worried about the next election cycle, you know, and somebody who was worried about what's going to happen in the short term. Remember the passage I read from Thomas Merton, Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless at times and achieve no result at all, if not bring about its opposite. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, 
but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And this is the, the heart, the vision of the one who knows. And when we carry this vision, we become a source of understanding. We become a, a compass for all those who are lost. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. So our sitting is also a political act. It's not a sufficient one. Breathing in, we sit and quiet the mind, open the heart, and breathing out, we go into the world. And there's Darfur, and there's the prison system, and there's the injustice in so many ways, you know, and the, how many square feet of rainforest were burned today, and how many children are growing up, you know, isolated and traumatized by racist and poverty situations that they're born into. How many millions of hungry children won't eat today? What to do? The one who knows understands that each of these breaths has the power to affect the world, that the yogis in the caves in the Himalayas contribute their endless prayer of compassion, and the activists contribute equally. I believe, says Gandhi, in the unity of all things, and therefore I believe that if one person gains, the whole world gains, and if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. And each of us has to find our way. And sometimes it's teaching one child, you know. And sometimes there's a woman who comes on retreat who's a psychologist for Weight Watchers International, their chief psychologist. And she got a little bit upset because she saw all these people dieting because they had too much food and they didn't know how to manage, and there are all the, all the kinds of things that were painful for them on one hand, and then she saw all these other people in pain who were hungry or starving, and so she started an organization called Dieters Feed the Hungry, which now has tens of thousands of members of people who themselves need to deal with their own suffering around food in ways, and give the money that they would have spent for food or the food to those who are hungry. Everybody has to find their way. I was at a men's retreat, and one guy said, I'm a disc jockey, he said, on a little community radio station in Southern California, and I love to play the blues. He said, that's what I do. Yeah, he said, I have a computer job, but my real thing is to, you know, at night to go on the air and so forth. And he said, I have a big following in the prisons. He said, and um, one day... He said, I got a letter from somebody who asked for certain old blues songs. So when it was the show time, I said, this is going out to, uh, you know, my uh, one of our fine listeners, Raymond Woods, who's, who's obviously an aficionado of the early blues. He wanted Blind Lemon Jefferson and, you know, Muddy Waters and all that, and he played it. And he said, a few weeks later, he got a letter from Raymond who was in prison, and Raymond said that was such a wonderful show, and he said most importantly for him, he said, I think that's the first time in my adult life that I ever heard anyone say my name with respect. So each of us has a gift to give to this world as a gardener or a journalist or a disc jockey or a conscious business person, a healer, or a builder. It really doesn't matter what the gift is. It matters what is the spirit that you bring to it. A school principal liked to make sandwiches for the homeless. Several days a week after school, when she wasn't tired, she just loved the pleasure of doing it. She'd go home, make the sandwiches, and go down and distribute them. 
And she didn't care if people thanked her. Sometimes people refused. She wasn't doing it because she wanted to feel good about herself. It just felt like the right thing to do. After some time, the media, local media, found out about it, and she became a minor celebrity in her area. And inspired by her work, other teachers and friends began to send her money for her ministry. To their surprise, they all received their money back with a short note that read, Make your own damn sandwiches. <laughs> it can't be by imitation. Nobody has lived your life before. Nobody is in your circumstance. No one has the gifts you have. No one has the opportunities. No one has the suffering you have that you've learned from. And I carry with me at retreats my favorite picture of Vedran Smolovich, who was the cellist of Sarajevo, who used to go out during the three-year siege in the Yugoslav War, not that many years ago, when the capital was surrounded in snipers and mortars for three years. No one could get in or out except by helicopter. And every day, he would put on his tux. He'd been in the National Symphony and go out to the square in spite of the snipers that could have killed him and take his cello and play music for the citizens of Sarajevo so they wouldn't give up hope for three years. This is him playing in the bombed-out National Library of Sarajevo. Kind of amazing being. I don't know what your gift is to this world. Um, and maybe our life work is to find a gift or a few gifts, one child, one, you know, garden. It doesn't matter. What matters is the that it come from the one who knows, that it's really not helping somebody, but that it's our world and our planet and our breath in to quiet the mind and our breath out to serve our, our family, our brothers and our sisters. And I end with a kind of bodhisattva prayer um, by Diane Ackerman. She had uh, entered into this um, group of poets who were asked, if we have prayer in the schools, what should it be like? You know, it's a dicey question. You don't want to force prayer on children. But if we had to have prayers in the schools, you know, these poets were asked, what, you know, what prayers would you want? And here is her... Here's her poem, it's called School Prayer. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it and the cloud veils drawn over it and the uttermost night and the male and the female and the plants bursting with seed and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. It's such a beautiful work we're given to do together, and tough, it's difficult. And the one who knows in you knows how important and how, in some way, how privileged we are to sit with our joys and sorrows and with one another and the things that scare us and the things that you know, awaken us and all of this. What an honor it is to take the breath in, quiet the mind, open the heart, and then when we go to bring this back to the world. So let's sit.
Thank you for your kind attention. Enjoy some walking. Or not, as you like, but do it. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.